Hi, this is Mark Vandermoss, the host of Radio Free Acton. We were in the middle of recording the podcast that you will hear momentarily when the news came across our desks today of the passing of conservative author and icon William F. Buckley. Buckley was, of course, the founder of National Review magazine, and he was also a friend and supporter of the Acton Institute. We felt it was only appropriate to pay tribute to the man who did so much for conservative thought in America, and in order to do that, we wanted to bring on our president and co-founder, Reverend Robert A. Sirico. And Father Robert, welcome to the podcast. It's unfortunate that we have to have you on under these circumstances. Yes, it is. Uh, Bill Buckley was um, a personal friend and, and a supporter of the Acton Institute, even a contributor to the Acton Institute. And this, this is a great loss to the conservative movement as a whole, one of our most brilliant thinkers, a man who stood against uh, what looked like the tide of history when he founded National Review, has now passed from the scene, so it's very sad. Uh, I just want to share a few um, remembrances of Bill Buckley. Uh, I grew up in a home where my dad would sit me down to watch it, uh, firing line, and uh, I didn't understand 99% of what I was listening to, but the erudition, the intelligence was so impressive that I would watch him over the years. And when we began the act Institute, uh, I wrote him a letter to which he very warmly responded and was actually the first speaker at our first dinner uh, just about a year after we founded the Institute. And he accepted no honorarium for that. He wanted to give us a good boost and uh, was very successful. I came to know him over the years in different venues, but perhaps the most interesting was 10 years ago, uh, I went to Cuba when the Pope was in Cuba, and who did I meet in the lobby of the hotel but Bill Buckley, who had come down. And uh, something a lot of people don't know about uh, Buckley was that his first language was Spanish, not English, because his name was uh, Spanish- uh, actually Mexican, and uh, we went out in Havana. Can you imagine driving through Havana with William F. Buckley, fluent in Spanish, and we went to Old Town Havana, and we were on the streets. We went into the church to see the church. It was um, really quite impressive, but on the streets we were stopped by a young man who was selling cigars, and Buckley and I negotiated the deal. We went into this man's little apartment, and he pulled out all of his wares to show us uh, the cigars that he had for sale, and um, uh, we purchased what we purchased there. And I'm sitting there thinking if the police bust in, this is going to be a very interesting news story. But um, after that, we went and had lunch. Uh, We had a drink, I remember, at Hemingway's bar that he used to hang out in Havana. Uh, I have to say there's so many more things I could say about Bill Buckley, but let me say this. He was a man of faith. He was a man who understood his faith and who uh, unblinkingly uh, testified to that faith. He was a man who believed in liberty and who organized one of the most uh, significant magazines to make the case for human liberty and the conservative cause. And he was a contrarian. He was not afraid to take stands against uh, things that he thought were mistaken, even though they were dominant conservative positions. And um, he was a good, good man. Uh, He became his friend very quickly. 
and uh, he was a generous man. And this is a great loss uh, intellectually to the conservative movement, strategically, and uh, on behalf of the Acton Institute, I must say, as well, personally. Thanks for joining us today, Father Robert, and we look forward to having you on the uh, podcast again and in better circumstances. Thank you very much. Once again, I want to welcome everyone to Radio Free Acton, the voice of the Acton Institute. Once again, we're going to try and bring some moral and theological reflection to bear on the big issues of our day. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and I'm the host. Joining me today in studio, we have Jordan Baller and Ray Nochstein, who are regulars on the podcast, associate editors both here at the Acton Institute. Jordan, Ray, welcome. Thanks for having us. And joining us on the phone, professor of politics at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia, Joe Knippenberg. How are you, Joe? I'm fine. Topic of the day is church shopping, and uh, the reason we're talking about this is earlier this week, the Pew Research Center released a study on the uh, church switching habits of Americans, uh, talking about interdenominational switching and the like, switching between religions. And there's some concerns as to whether or not this church shopping thing or this consumerist religious philosophy is a good thing. Jordan Baller, what do you think? One of the things that we get out of this uh, Pew survey um is not really news, but in a sense it's confirmation of what observers of the American religious landscape should have already known, is that there's great fluidity uh, in American religion and Christianity in particular. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the founding of Methodism, which, which within 50 years of its inception had become the number one single denomination in the United States at the time, uh, when it was surpassed by Roman Catholicism, which still is the single largest Christian denomination in the United States to this day. It represents a, a, a large trend among Protestants in particular to, to move within Protestantism, um, and increasingly we see new to move without Protestantism. Even though, according to the survey, 78.4% uh, identify themselves as Christian in one respect or another. Today. And this, this is also keeping in mind Protestantism remains the largest group within uh, America of, uh, in terms of religious belief, but there's, there's a lot of splintering within Protestantism, leaving Roman Catholicism as the largest single denomination. Right, that's right. Yeah. So uh, Protestants are still a majority, although a declining majority, 51.3% right now according to this survey, which was about 33,000 or 35,000 uh, people. So it's a very broad survey. Let's turn to Joe Knippenberg in Atlanta. Joe, uh, what do you think about all of this? Is Christianity on the decline in America? Well, it's hard to tell from the survey. It seems to me that, in a sense, what it tells us is that there's a good bit of churn in the religious scene. But if you look, for example, at the numbers, 80% uh, of people who identify themselves as Protestants are still Protestant. They're, uh, and if, if you look at the sort of gold standard of religious retention, that's the Hindus. 84% of Hindus are still Hindus. 80% of Protestants are still Protestants. That's higher than any other group. By contrast, if you look at the... Uh, religiously unaffiliated, uh, those who were raised religiously unaffiliated, about half of them uh, go to some sort of religious identification uh, later in life. So, in a sense, it seems to me that uh, Protestants and Christians in general are doing a, a, a relatively decent job holding on uh, to believers, even though there's uh, a good bit of movement among denominations. It also seems to me that uh, what we can't find from the survey is at least as interesting as what we can. I'm, uh, a question I would have, for example, is 
how do serious uh, adherents of a denomination uh, behave? People who uh, go to church regularly, who are raised going to church regularly, are they behaving uh, in the same kind of uh, shopping manner as uh, those who are, let's say, nominally uh, identified with a denomination? People who show up at church, uh, my wife calls them, CE Christians, Christmas and Easter Christians. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I think it is news coming out of the survey, Joe, if it's true that evangelicals and, and Protestants more broadly are doing a better job maybe than more popularly perceived at um, retention and or, or adding, even though the, the share of Protestants among the, the broader population is, is maybe declining in terms of its, its proportion. I think they're doing, well, I wouldn't say extremely well, but I think they're doing as well as, as any other denomination, any other religious group is. And uh, another question that seems to me to come up here is, to what degree will the young, who seem to be the uh, least closely identified with particular uh, religious denominations, to what degree will they, uh, when they get married, when they think about having children, to what degree will they move into uh, some sort of uh, church setting? We know that uh, people who are raised uh, unaffiliated move into religious settings, and I'm wondering if the motivator in some cases isn't, uh, or in many cases, in fact, isn't uh, marriage and child rearing. Yeah, I think there was a publication from, I think, the Hoover Institution within the last year or so that that, um, talked about the connection between marriage and religiosity and drew a correlation between those two pretty strongly. So for the future of religion, in some sense, uh, the very interesting question is what's the future of, of marriage? Right, right. In terms of regard regarding the young, there was an interesting publication that came out just a few years ago by Christian Smith, Soul Searching, and it's something that I've seen too. He, he makes a lot of broad assessments, and I won't go into the totality of the book, but it does talk a lot about the theological understandings of the young and how they really haven't been trained up as well in terms of just basic theological beliefs, especially in terms of their, their denomination. They couldn't articulate um, how their denomination was any different than another denomination. And just um, here I got a couple interesting quotes. U.S. teens related to us their core religious beliefs that were not so much paltry as just trivial. A 13-year-old white mainline Protestant boy from California, for example, explained his religious beliefs in this way. I don't believe in ghosts. They really aren't real. I think God's real, and um, he can see us, but we can't see him. One 14-year-old white Catholic boy from New York told us, I believe there's life after death, but that's about all I can really say. So, I mean, having done a little bit of youth ministry in my life, I've seen a lot of where young people are having a hard time explaining what they're doing. And and Jordan referenced Methodism and how it exploded in America. One of the things that helped it explode is it went westward. But another thing is they explained a lot of their theological beliefs, you know, to everybody at an early age, especially through song and hymnody. And I think this is just kind of a crucial thing for Protestantism in general and other faith is explaining to kids at a young age their uniqueness, their beliefs. So I wonder if, if Protestantism as a as a as a whole in the United States is doing a comparatively a decent and or competitive job at re- at retaining and or or growing its its members. Um, I I wonder how do we feel about some of the the moves within Protestantism, uh, you know, between various denominations that many people experience over the course of their lifetime. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? So even if the people aren't necessarily moving out of uh, Protestantism as a whole, but they're shifting between denominations, um, how do we assess that in the sort of consumerist sort of paradigm on church shopping and that sort of thing? 
well, what do we think about, uh, what do we know about the movement? Again, it's hard to tell uh, from the survey beyond the kind of broad brushstroke right. that uh, the mainline churches are declining somewhat and they're aging. The evangelical churches are growing somewhat, but which are the churches that are growing? Why are they growing? Uh, that's not something we can answer from the survey. I'm thinking of, of uh, David Wells's books, especially um, the one God in the, God in the Wasteland in the mid-90s, where he bemoaned the imposition of essentially consumerist model on the church, both the way the church was administered and the way missions and outreach and all these sort of things have done. Um, and I think you could make the argument that really what you've got going on is the culture influencing the church in such a way that you have alien structures being imposed on the church to a great extent so that the church is no longer being run like a church should be run as a, as a unique institution, but rather like a business or some other uh, social or cultural institution. Well, I've certainly heard pastors who, who I regarded sounded, or I thought sounded more like uh, CEOs. Right. You know, the, the measure of church health is, is growth. And what you need to grow is to provide the services people need. And, and I, you know, obviously uh, that's problematical if there isn't, uh, in addition to what you might call the come on, uh, the, the, the solid uh, preaching and teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think there are some uh, big churches that are growing rapidly where, in addition to the plethora of uh, services that are attractive to people, there are... Uh, there is also good teaching. There is also good preaching. And by good, I don't mean just entertaining. I mean substantive. Uh, yeah. uh, substantive. And I see that, for example, in my own denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church in America. Okay. Some of the biggest churches are uh, <clears throat> uh, do provide the whole range of megachurch services, but they're also, I think, relatively uh, demanding doctrinally. Well, I think that's one of the things you, you pointed to earlier, Joe, was, was one of the shortcomings. Another shortcoming of this survey is that, um, obviously, by nature, its emphasis is on numbers. And the other thing that it doesn't tell us is exactly what the level of adherence is within each of those numbers. So, for example, what, what percentage, say, of, of evangelicals, the 26.3% of the population that identify themselves as evangelicals, do they identify strongly as such? Do they identify sort of more nominally as evangelical? Um, and that sort of thing. And so wh where there are shifts, like you said, do those occur? Uh, which which groups do those occur among, and which uh, level of adherence do they occur among? I mean, if, if, if churches are to uh, derive guidance from this survey in any way, they have to ask themselves, well, what works, what's accounting for these moves? And that, those are things you can't answer on the basis of the data they've released so far. They may have some stuff that's going to come out later that will be helpful. Or it may require a, a different kind of inquiry to ask the question, how do you uh, keep your children adhering to the faith, and how do you uh, attract new members to the faith? And those are, I think, somewhat different uh, uh, sets of inquiries, and I don't think you're going to be able to answer them on the basis of uh, an impressively massive survey. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up at this point. Uh, thanks for an interesting discussion, guys. Uh, Jordan and Ray, thank you for joining us again. And, Joe, uh, appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk to us. Hopefully we can have you on the podcast again. Well, I'd love to do it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Joe, and thanks, guys. Thanks, Joe.
I think it's safe to say that if you were there with us on February 14th on Valentine's Day at the St. Cecilia Music Center in downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan, that Sunshine did indeed make you happy. And I'm, of course, referring to Dr. Glenn Sunshine, our uh, speaker for the day. As part of the 2008 Acton Lecture Series, he was in town to talk about the topic of wealth, work, and the church, and the reviews from his audience were pretty much all raves. If you were not able to attend the event in person and want to know what all the fuss was about, we do have the audio and the video posted online at acton.org. You can find those right on the front page, www.acton.org. Look for the Now at Acton section, and you will be able to find a link to the audio and video of Dr. Sunshine's address. And for our podcast listeners, I do want to give you a little bit of an extra taste of Dr. Sunshine's address here. And this part uh, that you will be hearing in a moment, we don't have uh, streaming online right now. It's part of the Q&A session uh, after his address. He was asked uh, about the government's role in charity, and I wanted to play this for you because I thought his answer was especially good. So here's a little bonus audio of Dr. Glenn Sunshine from his Valentine's Day address as part of the Acton Lecture Series in 2008. It's clear to me from what you said that the Bible really does talk about the responsibility to redistribute wealth. I think the next question is, is, there, is that an individual responsibility or is there a role for government to play in the redistribution of wealth? Is there a role for government to play in the redistribution of wealth? <laughs> My short answer is no. And the reason for that, the reason for that is very simple. Redistribution of wealth is not just a matter of giving money, as the scriptural understanding of that. What we do when we assign to the government the job to take care of welfare is we are subcontracting out charity that God expects us to do ourselves. It is our responsibility to meet the needs of the people in our community. It is not our responsibility to ignore them, pay some other bureaucrat to take care of them. It's our responsibility to do that. And the biggest problem that I see with the welfare system, and it's worse in a lot of other countries than it is here, but the biggest problem that I see with it is it, it gives Christians an excuse to ignore God's command to take care of those in your community in moral proximity to you. That is our responsibility to do that, and we should, we should hold on to that jealously and not subcontract that out to the church, because otherwise, how do we incarnate the love of God for humanity if we're letting the government do it for us? Julian the Apostate, Roman emperor who wanted to return Christianity, excuse me, wanted to return paganism to the central place in Roman society, complained at one point during a famine. He called us atheists because we didn't believe in the Roman gods. He said these blankety-blank atheists, not only are feeding their own poor, but ours as well. Okay. It was the action of the church as a community in the name of Christ, meeting the needs of the people around them, that won them a hearing, and that enabled the gospel to expand, and that showed the love of God to the people. It's worth noting today, if you read, there's a book that just came out called Unchristian. I'm sorry, this is a rather long riff here, but 
There's a book that just came out called Unchristian, and it, it discusses what the Gen X, Gen Y, and Mosaics, particularly the Mosaics, think about Christians. And the answer you get is Christians are bigoted, they're known for what they're against, not what they're for, and the only way you're going to reach that group is to earn the right to be heard by your actions. How do you earn the right to be heard by your actions when you've got the government taking care of, quote, all the problems out there? We marginalize ourselves and we marginalize our message by doing that. I think that this is an incredibly important issue. That's a lot more than just issues of taxation and welfare and things like that. It has to do with the integrity of the body of Christ itself. That was Dr. Glenn Sunshine, our speaker for the month of February, as part of the 2008 Acton Lecture Series. That series will continue on Thursday, March 13th, with an address by the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, Reverend Robert A. Sirico, who will be talking on the topic of the rise and eventual downfall of the new religious left. Should be a great address, and uh, just a warning, Reverend Sirico's addresses, when he gives an, a, a speech at an Acton Lecture Series event or anywhere else, they fill up quickly. So you'll want to go to Acton.org if you're interested in attending this one in person. Click on the link for that event and get yourself registered soon because those seats are going to fill up very quickly. That will bring this edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. We appreciate the fact that you have taken the time to listen, and we hope you will join us again next time when we bring you another edition of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure to bring the show to you. The purpose of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the Acton Institute, our programs and initiatives, you'll want to check us out online at www.acton.org. You can also check out the Acton Power blog at blog.acton.org. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Radio Free Acton.